Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other, where we get to talk to all kinds of interesting folks of goodwill and good faith about all kinds of interesting stuff. And if you dig that kind of thing, consider becoming a subscriber through Patreon to support what we're doing here and join our community, become a part of the conversation. And we'll definitely have a lot more information about that in the coming weeks. And with that, I am your host and so glad to be joined by a special co-host, Will Chan Wright who has an awesome podcast of his own called Faithful Politics. Will, we've been trying to do something like this for a while, man. How you doing? Um, I think I might be lost. I, I turned off the highway thinking I was going to record my own podcast <laughs> and somehow I ended up here. But, um, but since I'm here, hey, hey, great, great, great being here. Yeah, we, we turned our arch enemy into our, our, our <laughs> loyal, uh, loyal partner here. So oh, love doing wow. that. <laughs> And I have the absolute pleasure of introducing our renowned guest today. Lisa Sharon Harper is the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Ms. Harper leads trainings all around the globe that increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. She is the author of several books, uh, many of which I've been ensconced in over the last couple of months, including the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, and her new book, which will be coming out shortly and we'll be talking about today, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. She also writes extensively on shalom and governance. She's literally speaking my language right there. I don't know if you knew I was, I, I grew up Jewish and became a Christian, but we might get to talk oh, about that today. Yeah. She uh, writes on immigration reform, healthcare reform, poverty, racial and gender justice, climate change, and transformational civic engagement with her work appearing in numerous national publications. Ms. Harper earned her master's degree in human rights from Columbia University, is an Auburn Theological Seminary Senior Fellow, and also served as Sojourner's Chief Church Engagement Officer. That's a lot to pack into one lifetime. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. What a pleasure to be with you. How are you? Oh, I'm doing really well. And thank you so much, Corey and William, for having me in this conversation. It's really an honor and an honor to be in conversation with your listeners, too. Thank you. Oh, yeah, it's great. And so just so we can start with a lot of nuance, I think Will had a question about Twitter. <laughs> nuance, Twitter, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Will in 180 characters or less, go for it. 
Well, you know, f- funny thing, fun fun fact, you know, that 180 turned into like 240 right around the time that Trump got elected, which oh my I think, gosh. which I think, you know, Jack Dorsey takes should should shoulder a lot of that responsibility. But that's not what I'm here to talk to you about. What's <laughs> <It's> true? <laughs> what, what 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 I wanted to do, I wanted to read you something real quick that I read on Twitter, and I wanted to kind of get your response from it. It was written by a, a really prolific writer that was retweeted. Um, you know, I dare say was went viral. It goes like this. It says, a blessing for 2022. This new year feels different, doesn't it? It feels like the inhalation before a long, deep breath. May you fill your body, your mind, and your soul with breath in this transition space. May you reach deep, connect again to your body, to your soul, to your heart, to your giggle. May this connection overcome the hopelessness and haplessness streaming from cable news and clickbait. In these days of disillusion, may you may your deep reach reconnect you to your own core and may you rediscover your own power. Yes, your power. I can keep on reading there, but I, I, I'm, I'm curious if you recognize the author of that. Tweet. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote that. Um, I wrote that it was first thing in the morning and I, I was just inspired actually by um, the news and just realizing, you know, this is, this is, the first day of a new year and the news just felt so depressing and um, yet, and I was struggling to feel hope myself. And normally I'm not like that at all. And so I said, okay, if I'm feeling this way, a lot of people probably feel this way. Let's, let's figure out how to, how to enter this way, this year in a way that could actually be generative, that could generate goodness and blessing and smiles and and flourishing for all of us in the long run. Because I knew if I went down that road too long and we were not gonna be headed toward that future. (laughs) And I think honestly, hopelessness, hopelessness paves the way for a future that is unjust because hopelessness makes us, freezes us and makes us forget our own agency. Mm, Wow, very well said. Well, thank you for writing it. I mean, it was retweeted quite a few times. I, I think I actually, I retweeted it, unretweeted it, and then retweeted it again a couple of <laughs> times throughout the day, um, just wow. because I felt like I needed it. <laughs> so I appreciate thank that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. I think I saw that. <laughs> thank you for that. That's so cool. <laughs> Very cool. Well, as a way to learn a little bit more about you, and and the the book is was a great way to learn not just about you, but who you are at a generational level. And I was really struck by the illustration of the family tree right at the top of the book. It's this beautiful haunting illustration uh, and it somehow expresses the, the humanity that's represented in each of those branches, almost as if they're crying out, yearning in a way. So one, I was curious, who did that illustration? Adolfo Valle, Adolfo Valle. Um, he is an incredible illustrator and artist based out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, but he is actually a Latino man who felt it. He really got it. He read the book and he, he got the spirit of it. And so he did the cover and the family tree. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, but, but also, I'd love for you to give us a sense of the work that went into constructing that history. It must have taken a lot of legwork for just the historical sleuthing. Yeah, I mean, well, let me just say that I think that um, it, it, it didn't, it, I didn't start the book 30 years ago saying I'm going to write a book. 
that is going to call for reparations and truth telling through my family history. Um, I didn't do that at all. I started 30 years ago in a conversation with my mom after watching Dances with Wolves, oh. like, like half the country who said, oh, do I have Native American ancestry? And I knew that I had had conversations with my own grandmother where she said, yes, we, you have Native ancestry, but don't tell anybody because they'll think you're trying to pass for white. That's what she said. So I never did. And then I saw Dances with Wolves and cried my eyes out. As soon as he hit the planes, it felt like I met something in myself that I didn't know existed. So she started to tell me, okay, this is, these are the generations. And, um, and, and, you know, the book explains in chapter two, even now that history is still shrouded in mystery and breadcrumbs because that was the intention that was part of the oppression. So I feel great sympathy actually for, uh, for people who did not walk the trail, whose, whose ancestors did not walk the trail of tears or, um, or who are not enrolled. And yet there are these family stories that are floating around. Some of them are not true and others are. And yet it seems to me to honor every ancestor, it is to recognize the reality that they existed and, and, to, and to honor what they said of themselves. Um, so I I started just asking questions about that leg of the family. And that took me very quickly into um, asking questions about the other leg of my mother's family that was enslaved in South Carolina. And it wasn't though until the early 2000s when I got my Ancestry.com membership that I was on for one night, just one. And I ended up at three in the morning in Jamestown. I was like, what? Like, how does this happen? What? I mean, literally, because we had no idea. And it turned out to be through a marriage of someone uh, on that same line, that Henry Lawrence line, the Lawrences that are talked about in chapter two. So I was like, oh my gosh, like what in the world? So then I got hooked and, you know, ancestry DNA that I wept when I got my my DNA back for the first time, because each one of those nations that it says that my DNA matches with the most is a story or many stories of people who were brought here many different ways, many, uh, mostly in chains. And I, all of a sudden I connected to my ancestors in a way that I really hadn't before. And then finally, I think like the final edge for me was AfricanAncestry.com, um, where I learned that on my mother's 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 mother, going back a thousand years, she was from Nigeria Wow. and her people were Hausa and Europa. And the house of people are styling, like they are known for their textiles, right? They're known for their fashion. And the Europa people, they have the griots, they have the storytellers, they actually have many, many more. But I believe that our, our family were among the griots, because generation after generation after generation, we've passed down the stories. That's so that's so awesome. And and I can relate. But I unfortunately, I'm, I, I haven't been as successful as you trying to reach back my, uh, my mom is Vietnamese, and she was a foster kid. So she didn't know her parents. Uh, my dad mm-hmm. uh, was born in 1928. Uh, but him and I weren't very close. So like, mm-hmm. in order for me to kind of go backwards, I'm like having to, you know, dig up 
death and birth certificates and yes. submitting them and and like and I and I subscribed to all of them like ancestry, my heritage, twenty three mm-hmm. me. I mean like all like, three, all of them, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like I'm like I'm I'm here. Can somebody just reach out to me? Because I don't know who who anybody is, you know? Yeah. And uh, you know the the only thing I do know is that I think you and I might be distant relatives because it, it, it right. Night, night, yeah, right. And Nigeria uh, is where is where uh, I was at. So nice to meet you. Wait, can I just tell you very quickly? When I heard your last name is Wright, I thought he might be a relative, because Jerusia Wright is is my five times great grandmother. Hmm. And so there you go. And she was in Virginia. So if you have people in Virginia or who hail back there, hmm. that's where. And she was free. And I think that she might have actually been native. Um, possibly Cato. We we're, we're trying to figure that out, but Interesting. yes. Wow. Yeah. You, you, you and I are going to have to talk after the show. Uh, <laughs> there um, you go. But, but that's but what my, happens my... when black people start talking genealogy. We're like, you were on that plantation too. Oh you were right. <laughs> uh, no, but, but my, my question, my question was, was actually, um, um, I heard you speak at a, at a conference and you, you talk about the story of Leah Ballard. Yeah. And, and I'm curious if yeah. you can, maybe describe who she is and maybe what what part she kind of plays in the broader story of your life and and the book. Well, Leah is the third of three stories that help us to understand the roots of race in America and in the first part of the book. And um, I, I reserved her for the third story because she's actually in many ways the more typical story of African-Americans in that she was enslaved. Um, the first story, of course, is Fortune, and Fortune was not enslaved. She was indentured, and she had three generations of her family that were indentured after her. The reason why I'm able to go back so far is because her mother was white, right? And so because her mother was right, a white, she was able to be documented, and that, that, that story ends. She was also to be able to be freed before the Revolutionary War, before the Civil War, and all the rest. So it goes back to 1682, that, that line. Leah, on the other hand, was enslaved in South Carolina. So she had more of the typical African-American story. She was enslaved to a, the, the, the Ballard family, which is a huge, a, like a very prominent family in South Carolina. But because she was enslaved, there, were, there was a lot of mystery that, that surrounded her pre-Civil War life. We were told she had 17 children. On the census, though, we can only see, we can only track 15 that are there from from any census data. But the census um, starts with that first child that was born in 1865. Well, she was old enough at that point to have had at least five children before then. So we believe that the story is true, and she probably did have five children. And in my research, I found that it makes sense that her five children would not be with her that she had before Civil War, because one in three children died before their first birthday in South Carolina who were enslaved, right? And, and also only one in three made it to their 16th birthday in South Carolina in the area where, my, where, my, where Leah was enslaved. So we believe that she was likely a breeder, somebody whose job on the plantation was to breed money for her master. And get this, y'all. This is the thing that blew my mind when I did further research on her. She was enslaved to the Ballard family and the Ballard family hails from Quakers. Quakers, right? 
So they, the Quakers in the 1700s, and even, even as far back as the late 1600s, they began to question the institution of slavery. And by the time Leah was enslaved, the Quakers had, had given up slavery. They had actually encouraged, and I think forced as much as they could, all of their people to renounce slavery. But it looks like David Ballard, um, the, the patriarch of that family, moved in from Virginia, from a Quaker meeting in Virginia, all the way down to South Carolina, it looks like to continue slavery, to continue enslaving his people. And ironically, it looks like on two separate lines of my family, on my dad's line and on my mom's line, we had people who were owned by Quakers. So there's a whole history here, right? I think that's the thing that is that makes me come alive when I when I think about family history, even in the research, is that it makes history real. Like I, you hear about Quakers all the time. Yeah, they were abolitionists. Yeah, they, they, they led the abolitionist fight. Well, in many ways they did, but there were also other people in that mix that made choices who were Quakers to leave Quakerism or to try to hide it or whatever. I don't know. I'd probably to leave Quakerism in order to keep their economic advantage. It's really amazing how you were able to personalize, use history, do real, you know, academic history work, but also personalize it and weave your own family story into that. Mm-hmm. I was curious if there, as you were uncovering your own ancestry, if it seemed that there were some with whom you really identified that, you know, and it, it plays out in the book. But I'm wondering if you had ambivalence about some others of your ancestors, if, mm. if you even wanted to disown them in a way. Mm. Wow, that's a good question. Wow. Well, I have to say, like, because there's one line of my family that stretches back to 16, you know, 82, that line of the family is connected to um, Ulster Scott, an Ulster Scott family. And that's the reason, like I said earlier, that we can trace the family back that far. Well, they were mixed race and they were free. They were free in Maryland and then Virginia after they were set free from indenture. Um, they were all free, living as free black people or mixed race people in Virginia by about 1740s and then also in Maryland by 1750s, owning land and slaves. So not all of them, but one of them in particular, if he is the line right now, there's a cluster of people um, with whom we, we are connected to through our DNA, but we can't figure out exactly which one it is. And if it is the one we believe it is, Humphrey Fortune, then he owned, he owned someone. He owned, but it's weird because I think he actually owned a white person. <laughs> yeah. Really? Like, whoa, okay. That's something we don't really hear about at all. And it was also, that practice was banned at one point because of racial hierarchy to, to continue to establish racial, racial hierarchy. So um, I don't know, part of me doesn't know what to do with him, Humphrey. Like, I, I want him to be a good guy. I mean, obviously he was indentured himself and set free and, and tried to make it in the world. But what he did was he emulated the oppression of the master in order to, in order to rise in that hierarchical structure. Either that is true, or he was in, he was in, enslaving a family member in order to make sure that they were not sold by into slavery by somebody else to someone else. So that was also often true. So I don't know. 
I think another person that I have ambivalence about, and it's not really, I have to say, I love this person. I knew this person, my grandfather, Austin, right? I know him, I knew him. But after doing the interviews with my family, with my aunts and uncle about the family, my dad wouldn't even do the interview, y'all. He wouldn't even do the interview because he, is, he was too scarred by it. He didn't want to think about it anymore. But my aunt and uncle did. And after hearing what he put them through, he was, he was a monster to his children, but he was a teddy bear to his grandchildren. So there's no way I ever would have known that. But now I understand, I understand the, because I did that, that's that research, I understand the pathologies that are passed down from generation to generation within our family, that line of the family, the brokenness of my father's generation, the way that they were absolutely shattered as a family because of the horrific things they had to um, endure from their father. Um, but I, I also have sympathy for him. I have empathy for him because I know that he came out of Caribbean slavery. His father, his, his great, his grandfather, John Weeks, he would have been enslaved, likely in St. Kitts and then Barbados. Barbados, we, we go back to Barbados on Western soil. And then after that, it's back to Nigeria, also Nigeria on that line as well. And so that Caribbean slavery was even more treacherous, if you can believe it, than American slavery. Um, in St. Kitts, it wasn't just children that didn't live for a year. It was the lifespan of every enslaved person who came to St. Kitts. They were likely going to only live one year. One year. So they just kept replenishing the supply from with new, new people of African descent, new Africans that would come and they would just basically work them to death in St. Kitts. Same thing in Barbados after a time, but Barbados had, a, had another situation going on there. So their, their, their situation got better over time so that people could live at least if they were lived in, in subjugation. But it was, Caribbean slavery was horrific. And now that I understand that, I understand how Austin could be a monster. I also, it also makes the research makes that line of the family make sense because they're all artists, all of them. They all have an artistic bent and he taught them. He, he was an artist. He taught them the bomba that he learned in Puerto Rico when they were just about to move to America. They lived in Puerto Rico for several years and he learned the bomba there. He taught the bomba. The bomba was a dance of, of resistance. It was a dance it was the only place, the only space where people who were enslaved in Puerto Rico could have agency over their own body, say where their body was going to move at a particular time in particular space. So it was, and it was allowed, it was allowed on the plantations. So the bomba ends up being this thing that, um, that, that really helped my ancestors just to survive. And they pass down the arts in general to the next generations. And, you know, that helped us to survive. There's another running subject, a set of subjects uh, that was really eye-opening in the book. And it's how certain legal cases, laws, and even papal edicts, uh, mm -hmm. as, as you put it, laid the foundation for the legal construct of race in the United States. 
Can you walk us through some of those cases that are cited in the book? Yes, absolutely. Let's start actually with, with the, with the deep history, right? So first you have Plato, Plato actually constructs this thing called race in his book, the Republic, his tome, the Republic. Um, And in the Republic, he says, race is the different metals that different people groups are made of. Isn't that interesting? Like, really? That's not, it's really bad science, right? So the gold people are, they, they, they serve society in this way. The silver people serve society in this way and, and so on and so on. Well, it's arguable whether or not there was hierarchy in Plato's conception of race, but it's very clear that he meant for it to order society. So this is what we have to understand. Race was constructed to order society. And it is then something that colonial powers instituted wherever they landed and wherever their talons hit the soil and claimed it. They then first, the first thing they did was to institute racial hierarchy in order to order society. But we, I, I, I jump forward, let's go back. Aristotle was, was Plato's acolyte. He was his student and Aristotle declared in his book on politics, he said, if you are a subjugated person or basically people who are subjugated have now proven through their subjugation that they were created to be enslaved. Okay. That's what Aristotle said. So jump forward about a thousand years and you get Pope Nicholas V and Pope Nicholas V has a family friend who comes to him and says, Hey, Pope, you know, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to go uh, exploring and I need a blessing. And Pope goes, Hey, I'll give you a blessing and I'll give you one better, you know, wherever you land, um, wherever you land and you see that the land is not civilized or Christian, then you get to claim the land for the throne and enslave its people. Now, was the Pope actually being guided by the Bible in that time? No, the first page of the Bible says all humanity is made in the image of God and created and called to exercise dominion in the world. That's what it means to be human. What the Pope did was the Pope said, oh, Aristotle, you know, I believe you, not the Bible. I believe you when you say if a group is subjugated, it has proven it's meant to be in, um, enslaved. And also Aristotle would have lived in a time where they thought the only true humans were white, in other words, European men and able-bodied. So what you get there is you get the Pope now instituting racial hierarchy. Now it's civilized and uncivilized into, um, into culture. Flash forward um, to 1662. And this is where you start to see that. Um, you actually begin to see it a lot sooner, 1492. You could take it there, right? With, with Columbus and, um, and the Caribbean. But here, establishing the laws, the very first race laws on this soil that we now call America were established in Virginia in 1662. And in Virginia, up to that point, it had been, the practice was indenture for people of African descent, people of native descent and for white people, usually Ulster Scots or Irish people who were coming over indentured to British citizens, right? The way that to determine citizenship at that time was to trace the line, the lineage of the father. If the father was a citizen of Britain, um, Great Britain, then the, then the child would be a citizen of Britain or England. 
But that really became inconvenient at one point when they began to have people take them to court, including one Elizabeth Key, who took them to court to say, my father is a British citizen and he's also had me baptized. So I'm a Christian. And according to English common law, neither a Christian nor a British citizen can be enslaved. So therefore I should be set free, right? Her father, we don't know if it was a love affair or a rape, doesn't really matter. The fact is he was enslaving his child, right? And so she was set free, she won her case. And next thing you know, a bunch of other people win their cases. And that's what established the, that's, that's what led to the first race law because just a few years after that, the House of Burgesses in Virginia said, we are gonna change where citizenship comes from. It's no longer gonna come through the line of the father. Now it's gonna come through the line of the mother in perpetuity. So if your mother is enslaved, then you shall be enslaved. You shall be able to be enslaved because your mother is not a citizen and you then are not a citizen. So do you see, this is the very first race law in America, but it's also the first citizenship law. And it's also the first law that has anything to do with gender in America on the soil. So two years after that, Maryland passes a race law. They're trying to solve for a different problem. Their problem is not, their perceived problem, they did have the problem, but their perceived problem was, was not white men raping their enslaved black women. Their problem was white women marrying and having children with enslaved black men. Isn't that deep? I was like, what? So 600 mixed race children were, were birthed in between Maryland and Delaware, just in the colonial era, 600 because there were that many mixed race unions in that time. And that confused the racial hierarchy at a time when white people were feeling threatened because there were more black people being brought from Africa. So these mixed race kids are running around and the same question comes up that came up in Virginia, how do we categorize them? Should they be enslaved? So this was how they solved it. They said, okay, white women who wanna marry black men or enslaved black men, we can't have that. So we're going we're gonna to legislate that if you do that, you, white women, will be enslaved to your husband's master until your husband's death. The white woman would become slaves and her children would become enslaved in perpetuity. So that's, that's, that's the second race law ever on this land. And that then developed over time because they couldn't handle the reality that right after that, what happened? That law got passed and what happened? White planters then began to force their white women to marry black enslaved men and have children so they could benefit from the free labor in perpetuity. And this Catholic, um, Catholic colony went, ooh, you know, clutched their pearls and said, we didn't mean to do that. So they changed it. And within 50 years, it was basically the law that, that then um, became the law that, that in, indentured then fortune and, and her and all of three, three generations of her descendants. Because if your mother traced back to a white woman, by the time this, those other iterations came, you could not be enslaved, but you could be indentured. Oh, that is, that is, that is really fascinating. And I had no idea. <laughs> and uh, I live in Virginia, but I've heard you talk 
about a pilgrimage that you went on. And through that pilgrimage that you went on, you you talked about if you were in the Trilla Tears or if you were, you know, if you were at that time, how would you tell somebody about the good news? You yeah. know, like, like how would that sort of land, you know, as you're running for your life? And, I, and I'm curious on, you know, what, what similarities, similarities do you see there in preaching the gospel to a persecuted minority, say during slavery times compared to like the, the Christian persecution of minorities today. And I'll, I'll just use like LGBTQ, for instance, mm. you know, like what, what, what similarities do you, do, do you see there? Wow. That's a really, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that one of the things that, that the thing that struck me at the end of that summer where I did that four week pilgrimage and the last two weeks were retracing the Cherokee trail of tears I was struck by the reality that my understanding of the good news of the gospel would not have been received as good news by them. My understanding of the good news was simply Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. And so if you accept Jesus into your heart, he will live in your heart and you get to go to heaven. And I'm thinking, would, you know, would my ancestors whom their story says that they were associated with the Cherokee trail of tears whether they escaped it or walked it is unclear, but the, there's a connection there. Would they have jumped for joy because of that good news? No. And would Leah have jumped for joy? And the answer had to be no, it, when I was really honest with myself. And so when I now, after having done this research and also done a lot of work in terms of my own understanding of the good news that comes, that rises out of this brown colonized faith. Uh, it, would be, it would be the same today for Leah as it would be for someone in the LGBTQ community today, or it would be um, someone in the, uh, really on the Black Lives Matter front lines today. It is that brown colonized Jesus was the king of the kingdom of God, the creator, of the kingdom of God. And that, that king has come. That king came in order to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell bent on crushing the image of God on earth in order to claim supremacy. So when we, when we look at white supremacists, right? Storm the Capitol per se, right? When we look at them do that, they're trying to claim supremacy, but not just over all humanity. They're trying to be God. Mm. They're, they're at war with God, with the image of God on earth. And you know how the ancients understood the image of the king. They understood the image of the king to be a marker of where the king ruled. And the health of those images was a marker, an indication of the health of that kingdom. So if you had crushed, twisted, covered over, melted down images of the king in a kingdom, you knew there was war against that king happening in that land. In the same way, when we crush or twist or cover over the image of God, in people who are LGBTQ. In other words, the call and capacity that they have to exercise stewardship of the world, stewardship of the land, people who are people of African descent, immigrants in our land, women. I mean, you just, all people 
when we when we twist or cover over the image of God within our borders, within our boundaries, beyond our boundaries, on earth, we are at war with God. It, it reminds me of how you opened the very your 2016 book, The Very Good Gospel, uh, A Glimpse of Shalom is, I think, how you said it. So for readers, it's a study of, of the biblical Genesis account, starting with some historical context of when it was likely written, what the priests were commenting on, what they were trying to achieve um, with, with this telling of the story. And um, you look at some key words and phrases throughout the opening chapter that helped the it, it helps us understand or the people of God understand who we are, whose we are, what our role is in creation. And, and as this commentary ties into your 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 latest book. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you this, and it picks up on what you were just saying. What does God consider to be good? Mm. God considers connection to be good. At the heart of our purpose on earth, I am convinced, is to be reconnected to each other. That when God looked around at the end of chapter one of the Bible and said, this is very good, this is Tov Me'od. Tov Me'od. Mashlomech, Tov Me'od, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when God said that, what God was saying was not, and Tov means good, and Me'od means very, right? So good, their goodness, the Hebrews would not have understood goodness to exist inside the person or inside the thing. It would have existed between things. So it's ethical. It's about how we treat one another. It's about how we relate to one another. It is actually about our politics because politics is really just the conversation and the decisions we make about how we will live together in society. So when God looked around at the end of that sixth day and said, this is told my oath, what God was saying was the relationships between all of the created world was all overflowingly forcefully good. So when I um, began to trace my family history and see how broken, how, how broken it was by this construct called race, these hierarchies of human belonging, that began to, that became my foundation for, okay, so then what is it supposed to be like? If it's not supposed to be this way, if it doesn't have to be this way, what then is the vision of repair? And it is that vision of tob me'od. It is that vision of inextricable connectedness, of interdependence, not codependence, but interdependence. And it is flourishing for all. And it, it, it will take governance that governs toward that. But up to this point, we have had governance that has been explicitly at, for 200 years, 200, 300 years, and then implicitly for the next 150 years for the flourishing of white men. We need to face the, the decisions that were made, the, the policy decisions that were made that whether they were intended or unintended resulted in the flourishing of a few and the subjugation of the many. And if we desire, if we desire the rule of God, the kingdom of God, then we must, we must legislate according to the ethics of God. And the ethics of God declare that connection and love, love, which is the most radical connection, 
is what is required of us in the public square through our policies and our politics. There's a lot of stuff there. I mean, we could talk for another few years just about we this. We could. <laughs> but I know, I know Will has some great questions about how we reckon, the we, how we reckon. And, and I have some questions about forgiveness. But I wanted, since you've alluded to it a couple of times, I wanted to ask you something about your political formation and, and evolution. Uh, in yeah. the book, there's one scene that you described that was a brutal conversation you had with your mother about abortion. Yeah. Um, it's when your theology was shaped as you, it, it, you put it, the sense of safety you received from evangelicalism's high control culture. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to describe a bit about your Christian beliefs at that point. And then if you will tell us about your evolution while still maintaining your Christian faith, but coming out the other side with drastically different views on important social and political issues. Yeah. When I went down the aisle to get married to Jesus, <laughs> you know, as I call it, jump in the room with Jesus as a evangelical Christian in 1983, August 21st, 1983, somewhere between 830 and 930 PM. I don't remember, but sometime in that time. It was in the context of the white evangelical church. It was also in a larger context. It was in the context after about a decade of Bob Jones University fighting the US, the United States of America to maintain segregation on its, on its campus. And that year, 1983, they lost. They lost the battle in the Supreme Court. It's also in the context of a political fight at that same time, during that time, Paul Weyrich was trying to organize the conservative and build the conservative movement. Paul Weyrich is a conservative politico kind of in, in DC. And he had been trying to organize evangelicals to come on board with the conservative movement all the way throughout the 60s, 50s, you know, whole thing. But nothing would get them to budge because they were kind of, they were burned on politics from the monkey trials of the, of the 1920s, um, early, early 1900s. And so, he got on board with helping Bob Jones University fight to maintain segregation on its campus. Bob Jones University, for those who don't know, is one of those flagship race schools that was even before the civil rights movement. It, is, it, is, it was a segregated campus. Only whites could, could be a part of it. That's why the IRS came after them after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which rests on Brown v. Board of Education another civil or Supreme Court ruling. So here in 1983, you have the convergence of the rise of the religious right because that was the year the, that the um, moral majority was born. It was born after the demise of the Bob Jones University fight to keep maintain segregation on its campus. And Paul Weyrich is right there in the middle of it to begin to say, he actually helped them to tilt um, from organizing the religious right around race and segregation to organizing the religious right around abortion. And the only reason they chose abortion at that time is because there happened to be a rising movement against abortion within the evangelical world as the numbers rose, the numbers of abortions, but the numbers rose because they had never counted them before. So now they're counting them. So of course it feels like a shock. Oh my gosh, all these people are getting abortions. They were getting abortions before, they just didn't count them before. So in that year, the religious right decides they're going to focus on the 
flipping the Supreme Court, making the Supreme Court a conservative court. Why is that important? Because they lost Bob Jones because of Brown v. Board. They lost Bob Jones because as a, as a segregated space and the right to segregate in space like that as, as a result of the Supreme Court. So they have to, if they're going to maintain white male power, which is what they wanted, um, these are the same people who led the Southern segregation movement in the very beginning, in the, in the 50s and 40s and, you know, in order to maintain it, they had then to, I, to target the Supreme Court, but they couldn't do it anymore through race because it just wasn't gauche. It wasn't, it wasn't the way to do it anymore. It wasn't accepted. So how could they do it? Through abortion. Use abortion as the, the flagship that people will rally, the flag people will rally around and tell them how to overturn abortion is to overturn the Supreme Court. What do they get? They get two things by doing that. One, they get a Supreme Court that will no longer protect or preserve the civil rights of people of color because never in the history of the Supreme Court has a majority conservative ruling ever protected the, 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 the civil rights of people of color. And you will get a Supreme Court that begins to diminish and fight back against the rise of the women's, women's liberation movement that was coming up at the same time, the ERA and all the rest right at the same time. So you get basically a strategy to maintain white patriarchy. That, that is what got married and all congealed with each other. The conservative movement, the Republican party and the evangelical world came together in 1983, really the five years before that, but 1983 was kind of the high point because that's when the moral majority was born. And, and basically became a, a weapon in the hands of white patriarchy to maintain, establish, reestablish, maintain, and protect white patriarchy in America. And that is what brought us January 6th. And then what about your own evolution? You, you know, you went from having that brutal conversation about mm -hmm. abortion to being a leading voice of engagement with sojourners. How okay. did that transformation happen? Well, to talk a little bit about that brutal conversation, it was in that context. It was actually in the, in the late 1980s, 1988, 1989, when another abortion um, ruling was gonna be heard in the courts. And so, I mean, our campus at Rutgers was a flashpoint. We just had, we had marches every week on campus. And I'll tell you what, nobody ever sat me down and said, this is what we think about abortion and this is why. No one ever opened up a Bible and said, this is what it says in the Bible, let's study it together. No one ever did that. Instead, they just simply went to marches, brought me along. I then got the, you know, I said, okay, well, this is what our people do. We march. So I'm sitting here hanging on the, on the outskirts because I'm not fully in, but I'm, I'm there right in the mix of these pro-life marches. I'm there in the mix when they, when they show the silent scream on our campus, um, which was a doctored movie, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, that, that, that lied to us about this, this fetus feeling anything at that time. And that then got me on board. So I had this conversation with my mom when I went back home for Christmas break or Thanksgiving and she said, Lisa, you realize I've had an abortion, right? And I said, what? 
how could you? Oh, you know, and she said, I was going to die. The doctors had to, had to um, perform an abortion in order for me to live. And I said to her, they should have saved the baby. Mm. You know, me and my Calvinist predestination. Well, if the baby, if they save the baby and you die, it's just destined. Oh, how heartless, how heartless could I have been? to say that to the woman who gave life to me, who almost died giving life to me. So that's where I was. And I have to say it was a very long journey, a very long journey, um, going from that to where I am now, where I'm actually organizing conversations and have organized several over the course of the last couple of years, conversations within evangelical America. Let's do, let's have this conversation. We have never had, isn't that something? We've never had the conversation and yet we are so on lockdown for that political point, um, talking point. Maybe we're on lockdown because we haven't actually talked about it because we haven't actually investigated the scripture. So what, what was it that did it? It was a combination of things. I think that over the years, understanding how God sees my own people, people of African descent, beginning to meet myself. Again, I talk about that actually in my very first book, um, Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat. It was the process of talking this through actually one-on-one -on -one with a friend of mine who couldn't believe that, that I did not have a sure answer in the 90s. By the 90s, I was questioning, right? I was saying, but what about choice? Choice is something we're given in, on Genesis, on the first page of Genesis. This is what it means to be human is to have agency. What about that? And we went round and round for hours and that, and that stuck with me. But I'll tell you what, it was the moment that we found out that 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, <laughs> that the deal was done. Don't get me started. I said, you know what? <laughs> you have manipulated even me, you have manipulated the whole church into thinking that sexual morality is central to holiness. And yet abortion is abhorrent, as in, in all cases, even rape. Who benefits from that? And that ended up being like the mantra that I began to carry through my investigation of my own history, my investigation of the scripture, who benefits from this twisted understanding of the scripture? Who benefits from this twisted understanding of history? Who benefited from this marriage, the marriage of evangelicalism with conservative political party and the Republican party? What, what, what who benefits? White men always. So when I realized that, I was like, ah, oh, the jig is up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Will's done a lot of work on that particular issue. I know. Will, did you? It looks like you have a. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say, um, if if you haven't already, I've got three books that I recommend you you check out. Mm. Uh, one is called The Bible and the Ballot, uh, mm. written by Tr Trimper Longman. He's a biblical scholar. Does um, Bible translations. Um, it it walks through a lot of the the major wow. political issues and what the Bible says about it. And what we've 
we we've had him on on our on our podcast, Faithful Politics, uh, not the name drop or anything, you know. But <laughs> Faithful okay. Politics, go ahead, own it. <laughs> but, yeah. But 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 like you read the book, and it's not like the what he finds in scripture doesn't comport with what you have been told you're supposed to believe. And right. and as you're talking, I was thinking, wow, like right. like she's saying everything that he's that. Trump Longman was saying. So that's book number one. Book number two is um, um, Jesus and John Wayne by, yes. by my girl, uh, Chris and Dume. Um, yeah. Great, great book. Talks about sort of the the Christian Trump tie-in right. and kind of all that kind of stuff. And then, and then the last one that was written in 2004 by a guy named Gregory Boyd called uh, The Myth of a Christian Nation. Oh, oh yeah. Like, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading that one now and, and mm. it could have been written yesterday. <laughs> because it just it talks about this like Jesus and the kingdom of God is a power under, not a power over, and you can't utilize laws to basically force people to have a good heart. Like like mm-hmm. if you use the sword, you know, to establish peace, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have to use the sword to keep that peace. And mm-hmm. and he just goes into detail about you know, how important grace is sort of in the larger picture of like our spiritual walk. So those three books. I well, thank you so much for that. I am definitely going to check um, them out. I have actually read um, portions, not the whole thing of Jesus and John Wayne and love Kristen <laughs> Dumay. And um, so thank you for that. This last one that you mentioned, I might have a couple of issues with, with possibly with a couple of things that he said there, but I'm not going to take issue with the whole thing because I haven't read it, but I will just say, that the question of whether we legislate or not, I think that usually when people are saying we can't legislate um, goodness or love, what they're doing is they're talking from within a social location within the community that is doing the oppressing, right? So they're trying to get people to not oppress so much. <laughs> don't oppress so much. Don't oppress with your, with your, legis- with your legislation. But if you take that logic and apply it across the board, then you would also say, then just legislation is not right because it's compelling people to be just. And I have real issue with that because the governance, governance inherently is supposed to, governance is supposed to protect the image of God within one's jurisdiction. That should be the measure of whether governance is good, not whether it's compelled, it's whether or not the image of God, the capacity for people to exercise stewardship, exercise agency, and be be and flourish, whether or not that is protected. Um, that's what we see in scripture. And if you read the scripture and history through the lens of the oppressed, you'll see that. Mm. I was when when Will was citing three books, I, I was going to say I have a I have one. It's called the Bible. <laughs> Hello, somebody. <laughs> That'll preach. Yeah. One thing I've noticed about your work is when you do cite the Bible, you tend to cite bigger chunks. You know, like yeah. you went through what was yeah. it Second Samuel. 21 yes 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 king exactly. david yes um but but often not just that passage that i was i was grappling with today and, and that was my chapter that i read today bigger chunks as opposed to like half of a verse here and half of a verse oh, there yeah. no. you know yeah. but I, I noticed early on after i became a christian whenever politics or social issues did come up i was going to a, a fundamentalist church uh, for the first decade or so that i was a christian i noticed that there was this tendency sometimes for the pastor to start with his preference and then back scripture into it. It's a, it's a yes. proclivity 
that that has been pretty common. In fact, I heard one that just was like a screaming red light siren for me was uh, someone was using Leviticus 19 actually to argue against immigration reform. And I'm like, dude, did you read the end of the chapter? Like, did, did you like, or are you just- No, uh, the answer is no, he did not. <laughs> anyway, but so my, my question is, how can we check ourselves uh, or any of us, whether we lean left or right or whatever, politically, socially, what can we do to assure that we're not falling into that same proclivity? You know, yeah. that, that we're, we're arriving at a priori uh, suppositions or a priori preferences and then backing the scripture into it that, to, to arrive at the conclusions that we want. Well, I think that we really have to, there's two things I would say to that. The first is we have to examine um, how we got to the current interpretations we have. How did we get here? How do we, how, how, how are we understanding it this way? And then second, we have to have a different practice, a different hermeneutic in the way that we actually practice reading scripture and interpreting it. The first is how do we get here? We have to understand that the Bible itself, this document is not a white document. It is, it did not come from Europe. Not one European wrote it. Even Paul, who was a Roman citizen, to say that Paul was white because he was a Roman citizen is ridiculous. That's like me saying I'm white because I lived in New York City. No, <laughs> like, I mean, for real, like where I live in Philadelphia. No, no. Um, or, you know, because I'm a New Yorker. No, Paul was a brown Hebrew man of Afro-Asiatic people who was a citizen within white supremacist Roman empire. That's who he was. And that's that who that's who every single writer of the scripture was brown and colonized or under the threat of colonization by larger kingdoms, even David and Solomon, who were kings of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked. Hello, somebody, right? So they were always whining about, not just whining, they were, they were rightfully worried about being colonized, being um, uh, conquered by some group that was going to come along and, and enslave their people because it happened again and again, a serially enslaved people. This is the context of our scripture. Jesus, his lineage, that, that genealogy that they, go, they love to go through in, in, in several of the gospels, that genealogy leads you to brown colonized people who, when they wrote the texts, they were colonized. They were enslaved. They were coming out of enslavement. They were in fear of it. So this is our context. But who has been the arbiter of orthodoxy within the, of the reading of that brown colonized text? It has been white colonizing Europe. It has been Rome. It has been starting with Constantine and then moving through the ages till you get all the way up to, you know, the great theologians of the 20th century, the 20th century theologians all in Europe interpreting a brown colonized text from the social location of the colonizer. You know, even Calvin, right? So Calvin, not 20th century, but Calvin, Calvin is writing and theologizing um, in the context of, of Switzerland, right? Like you're thinking this is, they didn't own slaves. Like they didn't, they didn't colonize any nation. That's one of their claims to fame, right? But Switzerland had a huge stake in the slave trade. They financed those slave ships. They financed 
the, the transatlantic slave trade. How could it be that Calvin's Switzerland could finance the slave trade? Well, it could do that because Calvin missed something from his social location. In the same way today, we have to restructure the way that we approach the scripture and how we read it. We need to approach it in diverse communities that are saturated in the worldviews of the people who have been on the underside of oppression, wherever we are. If we are not reading the scripture with people who are colonized, who have been enslaved, then we are not reading the Bible, the actual Bible. We're not interpreting it the way that it was meant to be interpreted. And then we need to do something that is actually, um, I think, imperative. We need to decolonize our hermeneutic. What do you mean by that? Decolonize. So to colonize is to lay hold of something and to control it and to extract it for of its resources for your benefit, right? Mm. So we have colonized Jesus. We have colonized our read of the scripture. Um, we have said, this is the way to read scripture. We've created, quote, systematic theologies that were born in Europe. Who benefits from that way of, of theologizing, from extracting Jesus and every, every writer, Paul, from their political, from their social, from their um, cultural context, and then reading them in light of something somebody said in the, in the 19th century, reading them in light of something someone said in, in the halls of empire and saying, well, Paul must mean this because so-and-so said this in the 1800s. No, <laughs> that does not honor Paul. That does not honor the voice of the brown colonized people who wrote the text. You read that text in light of what they have been saying before that text was written. That's just good hermeneutics. The best hermeneutics says you cannot interpret, for example, you cannot interpret Jesus through the lens of Paul, which is what Calvinists tend to do in America, right? You, you tend to interpret Jesus through the lens of Paul, but Paul came after Jesus. So you have to interpret Jesus through the lens of Jesus and through the lens of the entire Old Testament, because that came before. And that means you need to, and also the lens of their context, through the lens of power, through the lens of the political context of the time. This all helps us to understand the text. The context helps us to understand the text. So the way that you described pastors coming at the scripture, where they come at it with an assumption, and then they use a verse to uh, proof text to, to prove their, their theory, all that that gets you is a colonized scripture, because usually these pastors are white. So they're going to read it through a lens of privilege, through a lens of, um, of a social location that stands on top of the oppression. The oppression is there unseen, helping them to stand. They can't see that. So they're going to interpret, they're going to over-spiritualize a text that was written by people who were under the boot of Rome, under the boot of Babylon, under the boot of, of Egypt. 
these people were not over-spiritualizing. They weren't spiritualizing. When Jesus said in Luke 4, I have come to free the prisoner, he wasn't talking about the spiritually imprisoned. He was talking about political prisoners of that day who were imprisoned because they tried to rise up against Rome. Likely, that's what he was talking about. The year that Jesus was born, just 30 years, within one and a half generations, maybe two generations at most, of the time that Jesus was born, he's standing in that temple and he, he flips back to Isaiah and he says, this is why I'm here. I'm here to bring good news to the poor, to the oppressed. But he said that in a context that where the verse, the, the scripture itself, that, that, that book, Luke says, this happened in the days of King Herod, in the days of a despot, in the days of a man who was the proxy for imperial power, a Jewish person who was really a traitor to the people because he was enforcing Roman rule and giving, giving a hint of, um, of freedom. But all that freedom really got sucked up by him. Nobody else got real freedom. So it was in those days that Jesus stood in that temple and said, I have come to free the oppressed. And in the year that Jesus was born, 2,000 people were crucified in one day because they attempted in Jesus's land in Northern Galilee, because they attempted to rise up against Rome. So context helps us to understand the text. And if you're reading it from your context, as if it was written there in the halls of empire or Starbucks, you're missing the point. Wow. Like I said, I feel like I could, I have so many more questions and I think I'm going to need to revisit with you, but we'll, right. we only have time for another couple questions and will you have a, one or two really important ones. So uh, if you could. Yeah. Um, well, um, just to that end, I just felt like I just went to church. Um, so <laughs> appreciate that, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. Got to preach. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I wanted to just talk about something really easy, maybe somewhat lighthearted and talk okay. about uh, racial reconciliation. Um, <laughs> oh my and- God. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, keep going, girl. I mean, oh, friends, boy. It's not, okay. not girl. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm a he-ham. Again, late, um, late. It's late. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so quickly, you know, to to whatever extent you you can, I, I'm curious about, you know, how, how do you how do you feel racial reconciliation could ever really be achieved if, you know, I mean, like we 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 talked about like the Capitol insurrection a couple times here, you know, where that nobody is agreeing to the same set of facts, or maybe I shouldn't say nobody. It's like that there's a, there's a denial of what the facts really are. So whether you're talking about, you know, the Capitol riots and I, and I hear people try to whitewash this, well, what about the George Floyd protests, you know, and, and where are the prosecutions there? Well, like I did the research that there was like 15, wait, hold on. I'll I'll pull it. There were 17,000 arrests made, um, within the first two weeks after wow. the George Floyd protests, wow. there have been 700 in the Capitol riots. So, mm-hmm. you know, and in a year, yeah, in a year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm just thinking like, people can't just agree on, on just what the facts are. And, and, you know, if, and then you can bring up CRT and all kinds of other stuff. And I'm just like, how do you, how do you achieve 
racial reconciliation when mm-hmm. when you've got a segment of the population that just doesn't want to see what the real truth is. Yeah. Wow, what a profound question. It's profound in every way. First of all, just to just to think about the language that you used, racial reconciliation. I mean, if the construct of race was created to do one thing, which is to determine who would be able to exercise dominion on land, who would be able to exercise agency and stewardship of land, then it, it creates hierarchy of human belonging. Therefore, I say race cannot be reconciled. Race, race as a construct must be demolished. We actually have to move away from it as a society in order to get to a place where we can, we can enjoy the beloved community. That said, um, this question of reconciliation, again, is problematic because there was never a time in human history where we were well with each, with each other. We were never well with each other. We have had an op, um, a relationship. People of African descent had a trade relationship with Europe at one point, but even that was uh, characterized by domination to some degree. Even Africans going up all up into, into Europe, Hannibal somebody, right? And, and dominating there. And then of course, then Napoleon going in and blowing the noses off of the Sphinx and other, other in order so that people would not know they were African. Hello, like mm-hmm. all of these things are, are real. So there's been, there has never been a moment where we have been well. And especially if you look just at African-Americans in particular, we exist because the relationship has never been well. Now that said, what will it look like? I would say, to bring racial, to bring repair to what race broke in the world. Is this possible given the, the lack of, of agreement even on basic facts, even on Jan- January 6th, 2021, right? I say, yes, it is possible and it is coming. It's coming. There is going to be a time not too far from now, 23 years from now, where the majority of people in America are people of color. And there's no one dominating ethnic group or racial group. That moment is coming soon. And demographers say it actually already exists in our nurseries and kindergartens, that they are already majority people of color. So with that said, that's why folks are losing their mind. That's why January 6th happened, because white men are losing the ability to assume power, assume power. But they're also assuming something to be true, that because they dominated, they will be dominated because they know no other way. There is another way. The other way is the way of relinquishing their weapons against the image of God laying down those weapons, joining hands with the rest of the human community and simply allowing yourself to simply be human and trusting the actual God to have your back, to protect you in the midst of this new way of living in the world as equals. But in order to do that, and this is one of the reasons why I push for people of European descent to do their own family history as well. In order to do that, the identity of people of European descent has to be pried off of this ethereal construct called whiteness. 
they have to come to the place where they are able to understand through their own family's histories, how they actually got here. What oppression or poverty were they escaping when they got here? Maybe then when they know that they can connect to their own humanity. And, and how did they, what was the process of their ancestors relinquishing white or relinquishing their identity as Lithuanian or British or um, German or Dutch? What was the process that they went through of becoming white? If they understand that, if they begin to understand that and the benefits of whiteness once they came, but now also understand the costs of whiteness to everybody else, perhaps people who say they follow brown Jesus will actually be willing to relinquish that costly power and join hands with the rest of creation, the rest of the human community and say, we can do this together. You see, the call is not one of calling white people to now become subjugated because the call is, the vision is not subjugation. The vision is mutual flourishing. But the only way for us to get to that is for there to be a reckoning. A reckoning with the ways that people of European descent have held on to this identity called whiteness, this ghost called whiteness with a thread now in order to hold on to power. If they can walk away from that and join hands with the rest of the human, the human family and simply be human, well, then we actually really do have a chance. Yeah, uh, we only have a couple minutes left, but I, I feel compelled to share a couple things with you just on the personal side. Mm. A couple of years in after I became a Christian, what allowed me to deepen my faith is reading some really good scholars, good theologians mm. that allowed me to understand the notion that so much of uh, Jesus's path to victory was upside down as we, you know, we might think of it, you know, his path to victory was through the cross. That's right. Yeah. You know, not, not through the Roman army or spears or swords or what have you. Mm -hmm. And that definitely resonated with me. It, it was interesting. It was disconcerting over the last couple of years uh, because I, I never identified, well, I'm not a wasp, but I was almost kind of put into that basket because of the amount of melanin that I have and right. uh, my, my gender. But mm -hmm. I always identified first as, as a Jew. I'm, you know, uh, one generation removed from cousins dying in the Holocaust, two generations removed. And my grandmother, who I spent a great deal of time with, survived Cossacks uh, storming her town and leaving our land that right. we were on for right. a couple centuries. And, and uh, that's how I identify. Mm -hmm. So what you say about how we read the scriptures, I read through those eyes, through who mm -hmm. I am as the grandson of Batya, who mm -hmm. <laughs> was born in Chernyovstrov and then left everything they had with their family, the, the Blechs, the Blicks. And so maybe that's why I was reading it a different way mm -hmm. than some of my, you know, suburban neighbors that I was going to church with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because you were able to connect to your own family's struggle 
well, then you can connect to the struggle that, that rises out of the scripture. You can see it. You see it better. Um, I, I was taught to explicitly not pay attention to it. Mm. So Jesus, when Jesus, literally they taught me, Jesus isn't saying that he came for the actual poor. He came for the spiritually poor. Like these are the ways that white supremacy whitewashes the scripture. So if you can see it, if you can read it from that place of rootedness in your own family story, you're doing well. Well, before we run out of time, I'd love for you to tell us about Black Fortune Month. And then there's some specific legislation that uh, Freedom Road, I, I guess, is advocating. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we are so excited. So Black Fortune Month is an opportunity for your listeners to really go deep into fortune and, and allow it, allow it to begin to to mess with you, allow it to begin to um, raise questions about your own family and lead you into your own family research. Um, we are gonna have um, downloadable study guides of, uh, of the book that you can download. You can you know, track yourself. We'll have a Q and A um, time with me at the end of the month. There'll be events every week and multiple events where you'll be able to listen to how other people are, are wrestling with this, with this text. And at the end of the month, we're gonna have an advocacy day on March 1st, actually, the fly-in day will be March, February 28th, and then the advocacy day will be March 1st, where we're going to go to the Hill and tell our, our legislators, we want HR 40, which is House Resolution 40, as in 40 acres and a mule, as in we want to have a commission that studies how um, what, what it would take to repair what race broke in our nation, and TRHT, the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission Act, that was put forward by Barbara Lee that is calling for a truth commission to know how, what it would take to repair what race broke in the world. So we need truth telling and we need repair. We need reparation and we need it now. And so we're, we're gonna be leveraging Black Fortune Month um, to bring as many people along on that journey as will, as will come. So we Great. encourage you to come, just you know, look up blackfortunemonth.com, blackfortunemonth.com. Elisa, can I just say one thing that there's a there's a comedian I just watched recently that was talking about reparations. His name is Brian Simpson. He's on Netflix. And he's, okay. he's, like, he's like, for years, you know, I've been told that we can't do reparations because the money, the, the government just doesn't have all the money. He's like, and then a pandemic hit. And then, and, and then I'm like, where'd all this money come from? Where'd this come from? What? Like, yes, yes. In that deep, like, wait a minute. And you have to understand people of African descent in America, African-Americans are the only people group in American history that have never received any kind of federal reparations for the oppression we experienced on this land. Therefore, that's where we get the wealth gap from. That's where we get the fact that White people are ten times more wealthy than 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 your your median black family. Um, you have one hundred and nineteen thousand dollars of wealth for the median white family in America, um, which is put up against about sixteen thousand dollars of wealth for your median black family. And that that's better than it used to be. It used to be five thousand dollars for mm. the median black family about a decade ago. So. So reparations is simply about, I think the way that I, I put it to a friend earlier is, it's about understanding that to repair what race broke in the world, we will have to not start from the grave of the oppression of, of slavery or the grave of the oppressions of slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, um, 
health disparities and, and the rest, food, dis, I mean, food um, inequity and, and all the rest. No, we need to start from level ground. We need to be rooted on level ground and reparations levels the ground so that we can all have the ability to flourish. Well, that this has been such a, a rich conversation and I'm left with so many more questions and, but I, I need to process a lot of what we talked about, what I've been reading. Uh, but in the meantime, if you can let us know how we can find more information about you, Freedom Road, the new book, Fortune, and all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, you can find out more information about me at lisasharonharper.com. You can also find out information about Fortune there as well. Also, fortunebook.us. So fortunebook.us, you could, that, that's the um, URL for the book. And blackfortunemonth.com will get you to Black Fortune Month. If you want to follow Freedom Road, we have an institute. And guess what? In that institute, we actually have um, a webinar series on how to decolonize the scripture, mm. how to decolonize the Bible. So if you want to go forward with that, you know, yeah. go deeper into that, check that out. There's actually a free um, segment and then it's a paid webinar series and it's fabulous, really, really fabulous. We had hundreds of people go through that learning community experience last year. So freedomroad.us is where you'll find out about uh, more about the, the, the pilgrimages that we do, the institute, the consulting that we do, and also the podcast, the Freedom Road podcast, which is a place where you can continue to be on journey with me throughout the year. That's great. And Will, it's cool hanging out with you, man. We got to do this again real soon. How can folks find you and Faithful Politics? Um, yeah, faithfulpoliticspodcast.com. That's it. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> Fabulous. Awesome. Well, it's been great hanging out with uh, both of you. And I certainly hope this isn't the last time. Your, your last year at Rutgers was the, the one year that I was pretending to go to Rutgers. So we might have crossed paths there. Oh my <laughs> so. Wow. Maybe we did. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, it. yeah. Yeah. Well, as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell a friend about us. Actually, most importantly, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Thank you.